Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Over the last few years, there's been a lot of discussion about social media and should they be allowed to censor people? Should they not be allowed to censor people? What would be actual First Amendment problems? Is it okay that the government put pressure on them? Here to discuss all that with us today is a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, Thomas A. Berry. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right, just for kick to, to kick this off, when did this sort of all become an issue? What social media was doing, who was allowed to say what, and that sort of thing. I think it's really once social media became the dominant forum for sharing uh, news stories and for sharing opinion pieces, we've seen uh, the traditional media, as you might say, the mainstream media, uh, gradually lose its its power and its market share. Just if you look at, for example, where do people find news stories online? Uh, maybe 15 years ago, it would have been CNN.com or it might have been Yahoo.com, AOL, maybe more like 20, 25 years ago. Uh, either big news sites or big um, search engines and things like that, or the various sort of companies that allowed people to get online. Um, but with the rise of Facebook and, and then Twitter primarily, uh, we've seen those become dominant in terms of where people find news stories, where people share news stories, where people share opinion pieces. And with that, there's been concern that, you know, control over if they have a large market share. And if uh, the predominant source for people finding stories is just through scrolling these feeds, then the decisions these platforms make about what's allowed on the platform, what's not allowed, in what order are things shown, how long do you have to scroll before you see it? Will it just be chronological or will there be uh, more specific decisions made about um uh, moderation decisions, content-based decisions, all of those become more consequential for what news stories and what opinion pieces are people seeing. Now, there was a law passed. I, I want to say it was Bill 231 or Rule 231. I'm not exactly sure. Do you know what I'm talking about? That basically granted social media platforms exemptions for what was said uh, you know, on their platforms. Sure. So that's a federal law called, commonly called Section 230, uh, 230 named after okay. its section of the Communications Decency Act from 1996. And that was passed really at the infancy of the modern inter internet when it was just getting started. And the concern was that uh, libel law, the law of defamation, the law about suing people or suing publishers for things said about you, really had developed in a different era, in the analog era of bookstores, of magazine stands, of much smaller um, shops. And the idea was that potentially if a magazine stand was put on notice that a particular magazine it was selling had something defamatory in it, and they didn't take any action to investigate, uh, that magazine stand could be sued for continuing to publish uh, that that magazine. And the concern was that the internet is simply at a different scale. The amount of data, the amount of posts, uh, the amount of pages on a website is so vastly larger than any magazine stand or any physical brick and mortar bookstore that it just wasn't fair. It wasn't plausible to hold website 
uh, platforms to that same standard that every single time someone reports something, they have to investigate it quickly or they could be held liable. So what Section 230 said was that you will, for the pur- essentially for the purposes of lawsuits like libel and like defamation, uh, platforms will not be held liable, will not be treated as publishers under uh, in the same way that bookstores and magazine stands were treated as publishers just because they host something on their website. So the upshot is if something tweets something defamatory about you or posts a Facebook post uh, that's defamatory about you, you can sue that person who posted that. But because of Section 230, you can't sue Facebook itself or you can't sue Twitter itself. Even if you told Facebook or Twitter, hey, this thing is is up there. I don't like it. I think it's defamatory. Even if you tell them and they decline to take it down, uh, Section 230 says they still are not liable uh, for having that on their website. So given that they have that special protection, do the right-wing critics of social media have a point when they say that social media companies shouldn't be censoring anybody given that they have the exemption? I, I I draw a distinction between two questions. There's a policy question of should Section 230 continue or should it in some ways be amended? And then there's the constitutional question. Do they have the right uh, to continue to make these moderation decisions, to decide to have control over what appears on their site and what does not appear on their site? And in my view, critics too often conflate those, or they assume it's a sliding scale. I call it sort of the trade-off theory of the First Amendment, that if you give the the, the right-wing critics that you mention, see it as a trade-off, that because the government has given them these protections from defamation lawsuits via Section 230, there must, in fairness, be a trade-off where they lose some of their editorial First Amendment freedoms uh, to decide what's on their platform. But there's never the Supreme Court has never said that the First Amendment works that way. The way the First Amendment works is there's a baseline floor of freedom of speech, freedom not to say things you don't want, and crucially here, editorial freedom. And that's really what's at stake here. Editorial freedom, not to simply say what you think, but also to host and print or digitally print what you think is worth printing. Even if you don't necessarily endorse or agree with it, you still may want some things to be published by you and other things not to be published by you. And that freedom is entirely separate from whatever the standards of libel and defamation are, which is a combination of the common law of individual states and any protections that a state or the federal government might like to give. So there's a one key, I won't get too deep in the weeds of precedent, but there's one key Supreme Court precedent that anyone thinking about these issues should know called Tornillo versus Miami Herald from Florida. Florida passed a law saying if a newspaper criticizes a politician, they have to publish an op-ed, a response by that politician in the same space in the newspaper so that they get equal space to respond to that criticism. The Supreme Court struck down that law as a violation of the First Amendment, saying it restricted uh, newspapers' editorial freedom. Now imagine that Florida passed some sort of Section 230-like protection for newspapers and said, okay, now when newspapers publish editorials, they cannot be sued for libel or defamation. If, If they then tried to pass that exact same law as a thought experiment, ask yourself, would the Supreme Court have to reach a different conclusion? Would it now say, oh, now that they're no longer liable for defamation, they've lost the editorial freedom that we said they had before? I don't see how that would be logical because the the point of editorial freedom has nothing to do with 
what are the standards of defamation or what risks do you put out when you publish things? It entirely has to do with the First Amendment protects the rights of publishers and newspapers to decide what the uh, publications they're putting out look like. The way that I think about the First Amendment freedom of speech, and I think the framers probably thought about it the same way, is that, yes, you have the right to say what you want, but you don't have the right to an audience. You don't have the right to a platform and you don't have a right to a microphone. But it seems like people on the right want to argue that you should have that right. You should have a right to get your viewpoint across. And, and that's just not the historical means or the historical way that the First Amendment's been interpreted, right? That's correct. And you say people on the right now believe that. The ironic thing is that the partisan valence on this issue has flipped 180 degrees if you compare it to, say, the 1960s and 70s. Uh, during that progressive era of the 60s and 70s, it was far left uh, progressive activists who were arguing that we needed to force large platforms, which at the time were the mainstream media, the three big networks and the big newspapers uh, to host people they didn't want to host. The idea was that these big conservative corporations were inherently biased against socialist ideas. They would never publish op-eds by socialists or radical progressives. And therefore, the only way to have a fair discourse is to force them to host things on their platforms that they don't want to host uh, to essentially create a right of access that that the First Amendment, as, as you say, to create a radical new First Amendment doctrine that it protects not just the right not to be censored by the government, but also a right to private to access private platforms. Now, in the 20-teens and 2020s, conservatives have the view that big tech companies like Facebook and Twitter are now called X, uh, were are biased against conservatives and and Republicans, and that therefore they are in danger of not having access, of of not being able to get their views where all the eyeballs are, and therefore they need to have states uh, pass laws forcing these companies to platform speech that they don't want to. In my view, both are equally wrong. It was equally wrong when progressives argued for a right to access, and it's equally wrong when conservatives argue for a right to access. We can get into the various ways why it's wrong, but fundamentally, I think it's short-sighted. It views whatever the dominant platforms at a given moment uh, are to be dominant forever. And it views the only chance to have free discourse as forcing those platforms to host things they don't want to host. When in fact, we've seen that every decade or so, the previously dominant platforms become much less dominant and some new technology or new uh, stream of, of speech that no one could have predicted uh, surpasses it. I've heard and I've had conversation with conservatives who argue that the social media platforms of today are basically today's public square. In my response, that is the, the, the answer is in the wording. A public square is public property. That's why everybody can go there, whereas Twitter is not a publicly owned company. Neither is Facebook or Instagram, TikTok, whatever, that these are privately owned companies. I don't, I'm not sure about if they, you know, uh, sell shares to the public, but they still wouldn't be government owned in the way that a public square would. Am I wrong in my assessment of that? You're, you're completely correct. And I've had exactly these same debates. There are a few Supreme Court cases that uh, conservatives on the other side will point to and will say, oh, well, it's not so simple. So the big one is a case called Pruneyard Shopping Center versus Robbins, where California's sometimes wacky Supreme Court, they interpreted their own state 
First Amendment much more expansively, and they interpreted it to create a right of access even to private property if it was private property that was commonly accessed by the public. So, for example, a privately owned shopping center, a sort of open-air shopping mall was the property at issue there. Some pamphleteers wanted to pass out pamphlets on a political issue, and the private shopping mall wanted to kick them out. The California Supreme Court said, no, you can't kick them out. So then the case went up to the United States Supreme Court, and the question was, okay, California can come up with whatever wacky interpretations of its state constitution it wants, but that can't conflict with the federal constitution. And doesn't it conflict with the federal constitution, that right of editorial freedom, that right not to platform speech you disagree with, doesn't it violate that to force the privately owned shopping center to host these pamphleteers? Now, in my view, the Supreme Court got this case wrong. It held, no, it does not violate the First Amendment for California to so force them. And it said, so long as the shopping center can distinguish its own views from those of the pamphleteers, there's no First Amendment concern. It basic The Supreme Court basically narrowed, in my view, far too narrowly the uh, rights and interests at stake when private property is taken um, for to be a platform for other views. It's not just about accident. In my view, it's not just about being accidentally associated with the people who are now on your platform on your private property. It's also simply about the rights of editorial freedom to make it a space where people say what you would like to host, and also simply the right of conscience not to aid and not to platform speech with which you might disagree, even if no one um, would associate it with you. So that's why, for example, we have correctly several Supreme Court decisions that have said you can't be forced to fund speech you disagree, for example, through union dues. And in my view, there's no real difference between being forced to monetarily fund speech you disagree and being forced to subsidize speech with which you disagree by giving them a little space on your private property. So Pruneyard is really an outlier in First Amendment jurisprudence by the Supreme Court, but it's now been seized by anyone who wants to say, oh, there's a tradition of taking privately owned squares that the public congregates on and treating them as if they're the public square. So a case is going up to the Supreme Court right now. It's going to be decided later this term. And this is essentially exactly at issue. Are Facebook and Twitter and other social media companies, are they privately owned uh, publishers like newspapers in Torneo that have an editorial right not to publish what they don't want to? Or is the Supreme Court going to radically expand the Pruneyard doctrine and say, even though they're privately owned, you can force them to host speech so long as they're not associated with it? Well, hopefully the Supreme Court decides it's not a public square. So we've talked about the right and them wanting to use government to compel these companies to allow speech, but the left isn't in, in here either. They want the government to compel the companies not to allow speech, what they may call fake news or inaccurate information, you know, what whatever the case may be. And the government actually has done that. And we now have evidence from the Twitter files. First of all, did both the Trump and the Biden administration seek to influence social media companies and what they allow on their formats? So that gets into some factual questions. And I think I haven't dug as deeply into the factual questions of who's, which, which officials said what from which administration. I will say that uh, this issue, which lawyers often call job owning as a kind of catch-all term for behind the scenes pressure, unofficial pressure, sort of cajoling private 
institutions to do what the government wants. It is a big problem, and it has been used historically by governments of both parties in all sorts of situations. And it's a, a pernicious problem because it's not out in the open. When Texas or Florida passes a law like the ones I mentioned that are trying to force Facebook and Twitter uh, to host certain speech, you at least know exactly what they're doing and you can sue to challenge it in the courts. When people are meeting one-on-one -on -one with officials from Facebook and Twitter uh, and saying, you know, we at the government would really appreciate your cooperation and I think you know how important this is to us and how how upset we would be if you didn't take this down, unless that uh, unless you have uh, records sort of eventually reach the light of day, maybe through a Freedom of Information Act request or or maybe through a whistleblower or maybe just through a leak like the Twitter files, what have you. Unless you find out about that, uh, you that can just go completely under the radar. And so you don't even have any challenge to it. And that's a problem because it's not just when that happens, it's not just the officials at the social media company who are harmed by, by ha being coerced. It's also the speakers on the platform itself who might either lose access to speech that they shouldn't have lost access to or themselves be have their speech kicked off that, that shouldn't have been kicked off. Uh, so it's it's difficult. It's a difficult problem to solve. Um, one of, in my view, one of the most promising uh, proposals is to essentially have sunshine be the best disinfectant, say, okay, every time there is communication between government officials and uh, platforms, uh, you have to publicize exactly what was said so that people can judge for themselves, was this undue pressure or not? That would at least go a long way towards making the government more accountable uh, when it when it tries to sort of take an end run around the First Amendment by coercing behind the scenes in a way that they know they couldn't do if it was out in the open. What about the argument, and I think it's made by people on all sides of the spectrum, that the social media companies are essentially monopolies. And so they monopolize the messages that people are allowed to hear. I don't think there's been any antitrust laws, lawsuits filed yet against them. I might be wrong. But is there a point there? See, I don't think so. And I don't think so because of what you said earlier, that these companies come and go. They're replaced by the next thing. As long as there's no barriers to entry, we have no idea why, what might come about in the next 5, 10, 15 years. But people nonetheless make the argument. Is there any validity to the monopoly argument? They they do make the argument. Then they they often refer to something called the so-called network effect, which is the idea that for social media in particular, once a certain critical mass of users are all in one place, it's very hard to disrupt that one place um, because there is benefits from being where everyone else already is, and it's very hard to get everyone to move over to somewhere else. That essentially, once Facebook and Twitter became the dominant platforms. Uh, even if they started having a worse and worse product, uh, no one's going to go to somewhere where there's a thousand people instead of billions of people. Now, I think you're already starting to see that put to the test and starting to see some cracks in that assumption with Twitter since it was bought by Elon Musk. Many of the 
rules of moderation on that platform changed. And you've seen significant uh, significant numbers of users leaving for competitors, new competitors popping up like Threads and, and Blue Sky. It's still to be determined if any of those will supplant Twitter as, as the dominant platform. Um, but we've already gone through several generations of, of social media. We had MySpace as a dominant platform uh, in the early days get supplanted by Facebook. Uh, we're already, I think, seeing Facebook to some extent become less used for, say, younger generations in terms of day-to-day -day communication than it was even when I was in college. You're seeing it be supplanted by things like TikTok now. Um, and there may well be something else coming coming down the pike that none of us can predict. So even the network effect, which which is how critics will distinguish this and say, oh, it's not like NBC, CBS, ABC. Once people got cable, you know, just took one click of a button to do something else. The, the network effect of social media doesn't allow that. I think you're even starting to see that the, uh, once people see a nicer alternative, it can happen surprisingly fast to have people move en masse to a new platform. You mentioned TikTok, and there's, there's people out there who want TikTok banned. They say basically it's a, like an intelligence gatherer for the Chinese government, whatever. But are there First Amendment implications to banning a, a company like TikTok or a, a platform like TikTok? There are absolutely implications, serious First Amendment implications. It would be uh, nearly unprecedented. I, I can't think of any other... Uh, example of a platform being completely banned either at the state level or even at the federal level. Now, to say that there are implications doesn't mean it's an open and shut case and it would absolutely violate the First Amendment. Uh, lawyers have a, a term of art called strict scrutiny, which essentially says that if you violate someone's speech rights, if you, you know, ban, do whatever, ban speech in, in any context, uh, that doesn't automatically mean you violated the first amendment it means you have to ask okay what was the justification and you have to apply you have to strictly scrutinize thus the term uh the government's justification for that in very rare circumstances like one in a million uh the government passes that test because they show such a compelling government interest again that's a term of art lawyers use uh, to justify the speech restriction. Now, if, again, it's a factual question that I don't know the answer to, how much of a national security threat allegedly is TikTok? Uh, if they could show, you know, it's actively leaking state secrets or whatever, um, then potentially you can overcome that test, but it's a very, very difficult test to pass. And one thing that might be frustrating for the general public is, if some of these facts involved and are related to national security such that they can't be spoken in open court, then you might have very important, very precedential First Amendment litigation happening mostly or entirely behind closed doors. So, for example, the D.C. Circuit has procedures when they have cases uh, implicating national security for cases to be so filed under seal is the term where doors are locked, briefs are not made public. Very different from the, the traditional uh, approach to litigating in federal court, which is that everything is out in the open, presumptively, both both the court hearings and the papers are all posted online and free for everyone to see. So that would be unfortunate. And I'll also distinguish there are two people have, have raised two issues about TikTok. One is the national security issue, and one is just that it's addictive to teens. Uh, the addiction issue is a much less plausible justification for an outright ban. There have been throughout history 
governments have tried to say that speech is bad for people, it's addictive, whether it's pornography or or whether it's uh, political propaganda. Courts have never accepted that as, as a justification for banning speech. We have a strong tradition uh, here that we trust readers themselves to decide uh, if something is worth their time or not. Yeah, the, 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 I hate whenever people bring in kids because they think it's like the, the, the argument winner. Once you say, well, what about the kids? And it, it applies the war on drugs. Well, if you legalize drugs, what about the children? It's always the the children. And it's a similar thing. Well, their children are going to become addicted to TikTok. So nobody should be able to use it. But what really concerns me is something you just said about the, the, when it's national security stuff. Because it takes place behind closed doors and we're expected to just take their word for it. And it reminds me of in in correctional facilities, they have something they call the safety and security of the institution. So if you're trying to find information out or you want to get a book in or file a complaint against somebody, whatever, once the administration in, in a, the prison system invokes safety and security of the institution, you're dead in the water. And everybody knows it because now you can't find anything out. And how do I know if it's really violating the safety and security of the institution? And it's a similar thing. If they say TikTok is harming to our national interest, trust us. How do we know? And what are we supposed to do? And in my mind, I'm always going to side with freedom, always with free speech and always against the government power, unless, like you said, they can actually prove what would you use? Strict scrutiny? Yeah, through, yeah. Through strict scrutiny that they've actually have an interest. Now, earlier you referred to how things have switched, whereas in this, I think you said the 60s and the 70s, it was the left who wanted to compel companies to allow speech. And now it's the, the right that wants to do that. But whenever they start advocating for increased government power, that government power never goes away. And it, you end up regretting it later when it comes and kicks you in your own ass. What are some possible implications if the government does get involved and starts regulating social media? I'm asking you, obviously, to play Nostradamus. I, I don't expect you to have 100% accuracy in your answer. I just wonder, like, what are some possibilities that we might not be foreseeing of letting the government get involved in these situations? A hundred percent. I think conservatives would come to regret it very quickly if, for example, the Supreme Court upholds these recently enacted laws in Texas and Florida and sets a precedent that, yes, states may compel uh, private social media platforms to host speech that they don't want to. Once you've once you've set that precedent, I think uh, Democratic states such as California are immediately going to jump on that bandwagon and start regulating social media in the way they would prefer. So I could see very likely much more strict regulations of so-called misinformation and disinformation online. Um, for example, perhaps compelling social media companies to enact new moderation rules that anything flagged as potential misinformation presumptively gets taken down unless the social media site can prove to the government that it's true or can prove that it's valuable or something like that. Uh, we've already seen the state of New York has compelled social media companies to have a hate speech policy. They haven't yet 
forced them to take down hate speech, but it's pretty close in my view. It's it's crossed the line to jawboning, as I said earlier. It's pretty clearly putting a thumb on the scale and telling these social media companies exactly what kind of policy the government wants, because the government in New York State has defined what it views as hate speech, you know, lit- criticism of people based on all sorts of protected characteristics, race, sex, gender, religion, and so on. It's had the long down the line list and it said every social media company has to have a system for reporting this speech. And what that essentially means is now, even if a website disagrees with New York standards for what is hate speech, or even if they don't want to have any kind of reporting mechanism, they just want to be a complete free speech zone, even if it's even if it is what some would consider hate speech, uh, they don't have that freedom. They have to allow reporting. And the more people fear that they're going to get reported for saying something, uh, the more likely they are to self-censor on these websites. So both Democratic states as well as Republican states are already pushing the envelope uh, for how far they can uh, regulate what basically determines social media companies' moderation decisions for those social media companies because the government thinks it, it, it can do the job better. Now, I know, obviously, you, you wouldn't favor censorship of these companies, but are there any concerns that you have about the type of false information that does spread throughout social media? I mean, conspiracy theories and that sort of thing. Does any of that bother you in any any sense? If so, how? Uh, it it does bother me. It, you, you absolutely do have. I, I think that there is a very defensible position uh, to argue that the social media companies should be vigilant in moderating them, that the best speech community is one that is pretty vigilant uh, about these issues. Now, I think that's that itself is debatable. There's a longstanding tradition uh, in the United States uh, when talking about free speech to say have the so-called marketplace of ideas theory. This goes all the way back to Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in a famous uh, opinion that he wrote, which is the theory that the solution to incorrect speech, misleading speech, factually wrong speech is more speech correcting it, not censorship. Um, I, th- In my view, the best solution is let social media sites experiment. We have some that are anything goes and we have some that are pretty strict and we have some like Twitter since Elon Musk took it over that have this interesting experiment of so-called community notes that I think is kind of an elegant uh, solution. They don't outright take down posts that might be misleading, but they have a sort of rebuttal if it if it gets enough upvotes from the community. So there's lots of different solutions you could have to it. And in my view, this shows the problem with the Texas and Florida laws, because they would eliminate that diversity of choices. It would eliminate all of the different options that social media sites might choose and put just one one size fits all rule for all of them. And essentially it would force them to be free for alls and keep up anything that's lawful speech. So if Texas and Florida's laws were upheld, you couldn't have a disinformation or a misinformation policy, even if you wanted to as a private platform. So as usual, just just like if someone asked, you know, what's the best way to run a newspaper? I would say I'm not an expert on that, but I know that we should let have many different newspapers and let them run themselves in many different ways. And that's my answer for social media as well. We should have many different sites and they should each be allowed to experiment with many different levels of strictness in terms of moderation and and let people decide which speech communities they like best. Right. Given the current makeup of the Supreme Court, 
How do you think they're likely to rule on these types of cases, whether it be lawsuits, legislation, whatever? When these cases come before them, are you optimistic that they're going to uphold the First Amendment or are they going to allow for restrictions? I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I think the biggest question mark is some of the so-called more conservative justices. So a lot of this momentum behind regulating social media as so-called common carriers is the term conservatives like, which is the notion that like a ship at a narrow port, um, they have to take all comers because they're the only option. A lot of the momentum behind that idea came from a short opinion that Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a few years back uh, in a in a brief, just just him, just a, a concurring opinion, not a majority opinion, where he said that courts should start looking into whether social media sites are common carriers. Now, Justice Thomas often writes this, and in my view, he's intellectually honest. When he says courts should start looking into something, he has not made up his mind yet. He just is uh, exploring this question and is open to the possibility. So Justice Thomas signaled that he's open to the possibility uh, that sites are that sites can be compelled to take all comers. Uh, the only other indication we have, and it's a very slight indication, is that when Texas passed this law that I mentioned, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal appellate court uh, with control over uh, cases arising from Texas, uh, it upheld that law. And then very quickly, uh, several social media sites appealed to the Supreme Court for an emergency blocking of that decision to block the law until uh, the, uh, the case is finally resolved. And we have the vote there. And it was a very close vote. Uh, justice Five justices voted to block the law. So it, it has been blocked. And it will be until the Supreme Court decides these cases, probably in May or June of next year. Um, but four justices voted not to block the law. And that's an indication, again, that perhaps they're sympathetic to it. Uh, three justices were Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. Uh, one very surprising was Justice Elena Kagan, who's considered one of the liberals, but probably she was more likely just voting because she doesn't like emergency orders. Most likely it was not about um, the merits of the case. So in my view, realistically, probably the worst that the social media sites can do is a six to three vote with Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch voting to uphold these these uh, Texas and Florida laws, in my view, incorrectly. But I could easily see it being nine to zero uh, on the right side as well. The conservatives on the court are supposed to be originalists, textualists when it comes to the Constitution. If they stuck to that method of interpretation, how would they decide in relation to social media companies? It's a great question because originalism is really uh, in its infancy when it comes to the First Amendment. You know, I've, I've dug into this a little bit and it's kind of shocking how little debate or little fleshing out there was at the time of the founding of just what do we mean by the freedom of speech? So the vast majority of First Amendment doctrine that we've built up over the last 225 years is uh, court court-based. It's not looking to early early laws and early history. And in some ways that makes sense because, of course, we forget the First Amendment only applied to the states uh, uh, until the Civil War era, until Reconstruction. That was the first time where it was expanded. Uh, or sorry, it only applied to the federal government. Yeah. It did not apply to the states until Reconstruction. And the federal government just wasn't, wasn't in the business of passing a lot of laws uh, restricting speech or even dealing with speech. So we don't have a lot of doctrine from from early from early American history on that on that point. Uh, so 
but in my view, they're just sort of basic uh, presumptions. We know that at the early American history, uh, the printing press was very important. Freedom of the press was in fact included in the First Amendment. We forget it doesn't just say we, it protects freedom of speech, it also protects freedom of the press. And those were considered in some ways two distinct things uh, because the press wasn't just about your own opinions, it was about the right to print others' opinions as well. And so I think looking to that principle and the fact that we had such a robust um, speech economy of small private printers really printing whatever they wanted, and you almost never had uh, governments going in and saying, don't print this, do print that. It would have been seen as uh, one of the worst restrictions on speech, which is a so-called prior restraint. Uh, give, given those facts, I think there's a direct analogy. Again, nothing's perfect because new technology comes up sure. that no one at the founding era could have um, anticipated. But if you think about Facebook and Twitter as really not that different from newspapers in the sense that they're creating a coherent speech product that people go to and read and scroll through and browse, and they want to have certain, they want to create a product where people know when they browse it. I'm going to see certain things. I'm not going to see certain other types of things. Then it becomes very similar to the editorial freedom for newspapers that that courts have consistently upheld for over 200 years. And we do have right the the Adams administration did pass the Sedition Act, right, mm -hmm. and that tried to limit speech in in some ways, didn't it? It and did. There was an incredible blowback against that. It, it, there was indeed, and I think a uh, nearly unanimous view among scholars now is that that did violate the First Amendment. Uh, the framers were not immune to violating the Constitution, even <laughs> though it had been written in their own lifetimes. Yeah. And just as today, sometimes partisan politics uh, can win out over principle. All right, Tom, thank you so much for coming uh, on the show today. Is there anything I didn't get to or you didn't get to say about the topic that you think is important and needs to be said? I don't think so. I just encourage your listeners to stay tuned to these uh, to this case at the Supreme Court. It's two ones that are likely to be decided together. One of them is called Net Choice versus Moody coming out uh, or Moody versus Net Choice coming out of Florida. The other one is called Net Choice versus Paxton coming out of Texas. Uh, they're likely to be argued sometime in the first couple months of 2024 and probably decided May or June of 2024. So for anyone interested in these issues, uh, should definitely read those opinions once they come out and see what, what the justices make of it. Okay. And where can people find you? Oh, sure. They can uh, go to the Cato website, Cato.org. Uh, if you want to see my page in particular, it's Cato.org slash people slash Thomas dash Barry. Um, and we've you can see all of the briefs and, and op-eds uh, that I've been involved with uh, at Cato in chronological order there, including most recently the uh, brief about this New York hate speech law, uh, which is currently at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, another interesting case to follow. Okay, well, thank you very much for taking the time to come talk to us. For now, this is the Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Remember, let me know what you think. Till next time.